Um, full disclosure, this is the second time that I'm recording this uh, because my dog decided to be upset with me that I wasn't paying attention to her. So hopefully that won't happen again in the middle of this, but we'll just see. Um, so hi, my name is Gracie Bain, and today I'm going to be talking to you about a fictionalized version of Jill the Ripper, um, specifically in the 1971 Hammer film Dr. Jekyll and Sister Hyde, which was directed by Roy Ward Baker. Um, so before I get started on that specifically, I just want to kind of give you a backstory of what got me interested in studying this subject. So I'm a PhD candidate at the University of Arkansas studying literature. I kind of originally started as a Victorianist um, that was really interested in the more grotesque parts of Victorian fiction, uh, which contrary to what um, so what some of my coworkers that specialize in other things um, think. There's lots of weird, grotesque uh, examples of Victorian fiction. And that kind of eventually evolved into studying neo-Victorian fiction or contemporary adaptations of the Victorian period or Victorian char uh, characters, excuse me. I also spent a lot of time listening to true crime podcasts, um, specifically historical ones, and I'm, which I'm sure that most of us uh, that are participating in this conference probably do something similar. Um, so I just decided, or it was natural to kind of combine Victorianism, true crime, neo-Victorianism, and what do you think of when you think of Victorian true crime? Typically people think of Jack the Ripper. Um, side note, Ripperature, uh, which is the term for fictional adaptations of the Whitechapel murders is a really fun word to say with a Southern accent, if you have one like I do. Uh, so at first I was hesitant to specialize in this just because I thought, well, everyone, you know, everyone knows about Jack the Ripper. Um, but as I began talking to people though, I realized that they often will know the name um, and they know some parts of the history. But what I really found, especially when I was talking to my friends was my friends knew the moniker, like knew the name Jack the Ripper, but they didn't really know much else. Um, and so when I asked people, well, what do you think of when you think of Jack Dipper? Uh, they typically say things like a dude in um, a cloak with a tall hat and a knife, um, fog, uh, smog, that sort of thing. Um, typically, so I mean, sometimes they know about the victims, but not usually. So what I realized is that Jack the Ripper has been mythologized through the fictional adaptation process. Um, for example, a lot of times when I tell people that I study Jack the Ripper literature, they typically, or even if I just say, oh, I do, I work with Jack the Ripper stuff, um, they typically mention things like From Hell, the graphic novel, or like a TV show, uh, or a film that they've seen that Jack the Ripper has been used um, either as a character or kind of as like um, a myth in and of itself. So I want to preface this talk with clarifying that I'm not a historian and I don't know everything about the Whitechapel murders. Um, there are many people listening to this that know much more about the historical um, stuff than I, but what I am interested in and what I think is just as important to study um, because history and fiction often play together so much, at least um, in this particular story, is the way that fiction has contributed to the myth of the Ripper since 1888 and continues to mythologize the crimes. 
So repertoire is a result of history becoming myth through the adaptation process, as I said, because repertoire is based on a historical crime and myth that invites the neo-Victorian reader to deduce clues based on either prior knowledge, um, but often I find based on their knowledge of popular culture. So it's unlikely that someone has spent a significant amount of time researching the exact nature or sequence of the murder of Mary Jane Kelly, um, but it is likely that they have encountered some form of repertoire. So it's funny because I once asked my coworker what he thinks of when um, he thinks of Jack the Ripper, and he mentioned a YouTube battle. Um, I don't know if y'all have ever seen those the YouTube videos. I used to watch them in high school. It was just famous people rap battling each other. Uh, but he talked about a rap battle between Jack the Ripper and Hannibal Lecter that someone made and posted on YouTube. And that was like what he knew about Jack the Ripper, what was in that rap battle. So as Antonia Primarak argues, who is a neo-Victorian scholar, the neo-Victorian is an aftering phenomenon that includes what she calls a self-conscious, intertextual, and often ironic relationship with the adapted text and the past in general. So like the neo-Victorian genre, repertoire is, palim is palimpsestic, palimpsest, that's another fun word to say with a Southern accent, um, combining myth, history, and fiction. So we don't actually know if the Ripper wore a long black cloak, but they are often depicted um, dressed in that. Um, Alexandra Warwick points to the myth-making process of Ripperture. She says that we can say that the Whitechapel murder and Jack Ripper are two distinct entities. The Whitechapel murder is simply the person who committed the crimes whereas Jack the Ripper is the title of a far more complicated accretion, the discursive construct arising from those killings. So it's basically my argument that the moniker Jack the Ripper is an amalgamation of images, both factual and fictional. Um, and just to give you another example of, of kind of the response uh, that people give me that I feel like incorporates fact, fiction, myth, all of those kind of things is, uh, I asked someone else what they imagined when they imagined Jack the Ripper, and they told me that they're, they said, quote, I'm not super familiar with the actual historical figure, but I think of true crime, dive novels, and like old noir movies. Um, so Jack the Ripper is a brand, one that incorporates a specific setting and aesthetic, uh, which you can see in Ripperture. So I'm interested in a lot of different aspects of Ripperture, but today I want to focus on one subgenre of this subgenre. Um, gender inversion narrative, narratives or films with Jill the Ripper. Um, more specifically, I want to focus on the film Dr. Jekyll and Sister Hyde. And there are a lot of, I talk about this in my dissertation and in my dissertation podcast, but there are a lot of examples of fictional adaptations of um, a Jill the Ripper character. And this is just kind of one of them that I think is uh, one of the most fun ones. So in this film, Dr. Jekyll and Sister Hyde, Dr. Jekyll discovers a way to prolong life to give, to give him more time to find a cure for diseases. So basically he thinks the longer he lives, the more people he can help. Um, he eventually realizes that if he uses female reproductive organs on their hormones, he can make a serum that allows him to live for longer. Um, unfortunately, or fortunately, I guess, uh, the serum turns the swallower into a woman for a period of time. Uh, so at first, Jekyll gets Burke and Hare of Birking fame to procure bodies whose reproductive organs will be used for the serum until they are caught 
and blind and hanged respectively. So not to get too far off track here, but um, I just think that this is interesting because often Ripperture incorporates other Victorian true crime stuff. Um, Burke and Hare, as we probably know, are based off of the two historical murderers, William Burke and William, William Hare. The two men were convicted of murder in 1828 in Edinburgh, Scotland. Um, the pair dug up dead bodies to be used by a local doctor, and eventually they started getting those bodies by murdering people. So anyway, back to the film. Uh, after Burke and Hare are incapable of procuring bodies because they've been blinded and hanged, um, Dr. Jekyll starts to just kill the women himself, uh, thinking of them as sacrifices for the greater good. Oh, I apologize. I think something messed up with my computer. So, um, anyway, after Burke and Hare, as I said, are incapable of, uh, of procuring bodies because they are down for the count, um, Dr. Jekyll starts killing the women, and eventually it just becomes too dangerous for him to murder as himself because there are posters posted all over town, you know, warning people, look out for Jack the Ripper, this is what he's wearing. Um, and you can see in this this image that uh, they're depicting Dr. Jekyll in a very similar garb as some of the depictions of Jack the Ripper. Um, so in order for him to kill women without them being suspicious of him, um, he transitions into Sister Hyde uh, to kill sex workers, essentially because they trust her because she's a woman. Um, Sister Hyde begins to have too much power, though, over the weaker Dr. Jekyll because she is able to control the transformation from one of them into the other. Um, it's very similar to the, to the novella, but essentially she starts being able to be turn into herself um, without the aid of the serum. So Jekyll eventually finds an anecdote to the transformations um, that'll solve all of his problems, but he just happens to accidentally be chased by the police and fall off of a ledge um, in the middle of a trans transformation. And I just want to say, if the, if the plot sounds confusing, it's because it is, um, as a lot of ripperture is. So just to kind of backpedal, um, to talk about Robert Lewis, and Lewis Stevenson's The Strange Case of Jack, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, which is obviously one of the stories that this film is playing off of. Um, it was first published in 1886, and it's perhaps as famous as the mythology of the Ripper. So in the novella, it's similar to the film, the good Dr. Jekyll invents a potion that allows him to split the good and the bad in, a, in himself. So the bad Hyde commits several crimes, which is inconvenient for Jekyll, um, but it only really starts to become a problem when um, Jekyll turns into Hyde without the aid of uh, science. So unlike the seductive yet evil sister Hyde, and unlike the way Hyde is often portrayed in Hollywood, Stevenson's Hyde was quote, pale and dwarfish. He gave an impression of deformity without any nameable malformation. He had a displeasing smile. He had borne himself to the lawyer with a sort of murderous mixture of timidity and boldness. And he spoke with a husky whispering and somewhat broken voice. All these points against him, but not all of these together could explain the hereto unknown disgust, loathing and fear with which Mr. Utterson regarded him. Um, and Mr. Utterson is another character that we'll talk about um, in a little bit. 
but the text was extremely popular when it came out and it's been adapted since the 1880s. Um, but Dr. Jekyll and Sister Hyde as an adaptation of the Stevenson Jekyll and Hyde story is an interesting text because it does something different with its gender inversion and its participation in the Jack the Ripper myth. So in fact, feminist scholar Elaine Showalter argues, quote, the film's mingling of themes of duality and bisexuality, science and religion as a closer um, reading of Stevenson's story than the more celebrated Hollywood versions, end quote. So I'm of course, broadly interested in all of the themes that Showalter mentions in that quilt, like science, religion, um, duality, that sort of thing. But what I'm interested in right now for this talk is the play between those themes and Jack the Ripper literature. So interestingly, as I'm sure many of you know, um, the mythologies of the Ripper and Hyde are intertwined and they truly have been since 1888. Um, so the famous actor, and this is the story that I like to tell people to get them interested in what I do for a dissertation. Um, the famous actor, Robert Mansfield, who played Jekyll and Hyde on stage, he did so well that he was considered a suspect in the Ripper murders. So it's interesting too, because I found a newspaper article that quoted Richard Mansfield explaining kind of the emotional and physical effect of the performances to a newspaper. So they quote him as saying, a rather curious incident occurred the first night of the show. The murder is accomplished by a sudden leap of mind onto the victim, a part which played in Boston by a large muscular man. So excited was I that I introduced a little more realism than was necessary for the act, which I just think is interesting. That was my dog. I hope you weren't able to hear her, but I, I think she's mad again. Um, so contemporaneous repertoire, as well as newspaper reports, constantly made references to the story of Jekyll and Hyde. So in 1888, and there's lots more examples that I'm going to give you, um, but these are ones that I've found interesting. So in 1888, Daily Evening Bulletin claims to have interviewed Jesse Pomori, who was um, who told them that it was probably a case of Jekyll and Hyde. So presumably the newspaper is talking about Jesse Pomeroy, who was convicted of murder in 1874 when he was 14. Um, Detective Clint West posits that, quote, it may be a second case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde in the Whitechapel murders or on the track of a fiend, which is a dime novel that was published in December of 1888. Later, the detective follows a suspect to a building next to a theater that was quote, in the vicinity of a large theater where a popular actor was playing an exciting drama, which depicted the life of a man who was possessed of dual character, obviously referring to uh, a play of Jack uh, Jekyll and Hyde. The Milwaukee Journal reported that the police's theory was that Jack the Ripper had read Jekyll and Hyde and quote, was so upset by reading Robert Louis, Robert Louis Stevenson's great work that he is exemplifying the characters in himself, end quote. So the myth of Jack the Ripper and the influence of Stevenson's story has been obvious, just the connection between the two um, since the beginning. Um, and here I have that really iconic uh, image of, um, of Richard Mansfield as Jekyll, which is obviously the figure standing up, uh, and as Hyde, which is the obviously the figure crouching down. Um, and again, like I mentioned earlier, he did so well in this transformation, later, like on stage in front of people, that they just couldn't believe that a, an actual person could act this kind of transformation. Excuse me. 
Um, so I'd like to briefly mention the first fictional test that text that I could find that references a Jill the Ripper character, um, a dime novel published by the fictional A.F. Pinkerton called The Whitechapel Murders or An American Detective in London, which was published in 1889. So I do want to note that there could be earlier examples, but this is the earliest one that I have been able to find with the resources that I have access to as a graduate student um, with not always the best resources available. Um, so in this story, Ogden Richards, a detective, is in London for an unrelated case when he decides to throw his hat in the ring um, to solve the Whitechapel murders, which is really common in um, dime novels in 1888 or like the years after someone just happens to be in town in London and they're like, I guess we'll just try and solve these murders. And typically they do. Um, which is a whole nother conversation. But Ogden Richard is joined by his best friends and partner, um, uh, a man by the name of Servas. So through his investigation, Richard suspects Servas uh, as being the Ripper after he has brief blackouts in which he just returns to the shared rooms with bloody clothing. Um, eventually, Richards finds that a beautiful indigenous um, Native American woman called Princess Wakanta has mesmerized Servas into either performing the murders or just like serving as a patsy. Um, it's never solved uh, or it's, it's never uh, it's never decided or explained to the reader which one it is. So um, excuse me, I keep doing that. So she's able to briefly mesmerize Richards because she just happens to have that talent. Um, and that's how she gets uh, Servas to do her bidding and she's able to mesmerize um, him. And so she uh, she starts to mesmerize Richard, but he just like proves to be, he's way too manly and way too strong for it to last long. Because um, again, this detective figure can be fallible, but like not too fallible. Um, so we know that racism was an integral part of the discourse around the white child murders. There's lots of examples of this. Um, a suspect of the Ripper murders was a Sioux man called Black Elk that toured with Buffalo Bill's Wild West show. Um, so like racism has been since 1888, obviously a part of the adaptation and mythologization. Adaptation of um, Jack the Ripper. So the dime novel, written by A.F. Pinkerton is a Jill the Ripper by proxy story basically because she doesn't actually do any of the murders herself unlike Sister Hyde um, or really any of the other texts that I uh, talk about in my dissertation. But um, so she's exoticized and fetishized. Ogden constantly refers to her with words like unworldly. Uh, he says that she has suppressed energy describes her as having the coquettish grace of a Creole. Um, the first time Ogden Richards sees her, he describes her as follows. So he says in a dime novel, I fairly gasped with amazement for never before had my eyes been dazzled by such regal barbaric beauty. She entered the room like a queen, a head well poised on a beautiful throat and adorned with the glory of green black hair, brilliant in its ebony texture. The hair fell nearly down to her eyebrows and beneath them flashed a pair of velvety eyes, black as the shadow of a moonless midnight. Her umber face betrayed the East Indian swarthy complexion, but with her it was living bronze and the face was unworldly in its beauty, end quote. Um, 
so basically her backstory is that her and her father, the chief, had been accused of participating in the conflict in Minnesota during the Civil War. Um, and she's probably, it probably is referencing the Dakota War of 1862, where members of the Sioux um, and white settlers conflicted after prolonged colonization, starvation, among other things, which uh, is a whole, a whole nother talk. But Princess Wakanda's father fled to Canada, Canada with her um, before he and his daughter then went to London. And so that's how she ends up in London um, as an indigenous woman for Ogden Richards to meet her and for Servas to meet her. So instead of being ashamed of her heritage, she's proud and she's self-assured, which masks her simultaneously admirable, which, excuse me, makes her simultaneously admirable, but also much more suspicious to Ogden Richards. Um, so I haven't been able to find that much secondary research on this particular text and really repertoire dime novels at all. Um, but I do want to just quickly touch on what dime novels were before we jump into the actual text that I've told you we're going to talk about today. Um, so Wilbur Miller defines them, quote, dime novels, paperback thrillers first published in 1860, were one of the first forms of American mass circulation literature. Descendants of serialized story papers dating back to the 1840s, their first mass audience was Civil War soldiers. The plots of the dime novels were familiar to readers of higher price fiction, thrown into bolder relief and stripped of all dilemmas of the soul. Um, and we'll talk about his opinion on that. Um, their cheap price, originally a dime, later a nickel, reflected the concern of the writers and publishers to sell as many copies as possible and also made them readily available to segments of the population who might not have had the means or the time to do much reading. Content, which was often drawn from newspaper crime reporting and other contemporary accounts, was selected for its popular appeal and its resonance with popular attitudes and imageries, end quote. So um, just based off of that quote, uh, Wilbur doesn't seem to be a huge fan of, of dime novels as a genre. Um, and I think some of what's in there is uh, it's useful because it, it points to kind of the history of dime novels and where dime novels often used uh, or got uh, inspiration from, like the Whitechapel murders. Um, but I think it's a mistake to think that fast fiction like dime novels necessarily negate like the act of critical thinking. Um, so I don't wanna point to that, but what I am pointing to are that there are early examples of Joe the Ripper in fiction because I want to emphasize this kind of Victorian precedent. Oh, really bad at scrolling on this. On from the Victorian precedence of a Jill the Ripper character, uh, back to Dr. Jekyll and Sister Hyde and Stevenson's novel. So I want to briefly mention the detective, I'm using that term very, very loosely, figure in Stevenson's um, novella and Bacter's film. So in Stevenson's novella, the detective, uh, who seemingly isn't really that interested in solving anything um, is Utterson. So obviously, and perhaps ironically, Utterson's name is a derivative of the verb to utter, which means to give verbal expression to. Utterson, unlike his name, is not interested in uttering Jekyll's truth to the world. In fact, Stevenson's novel describes him as being discreet, really to the point of excess. 
Um, at one point, uh, it says, but he had an improved tolerance for others, sometimes wondering almost with envy at the high pressure of spirits involved in their misdeeds and in any extremity inclined to help rather than to reprove. I inclined to Cain's heresy, he used to say quaintly. I let my brother go to the devil in his own way. In this character, it was frequently his fortune to be the last reputable acquaintance and the last good influence in the lives of downgoing men. And to such as these, so long as they came about his chambers, he never marked a shade of change in his demeanor, end quote. So Utterson, unlike many others examples in literature, um, just like Ogden Richard, which was from the dive novel that we talked about earlier, uh, he's really not interested in bringing Hyde to any official justice because it will implicate Jekyll in the process. In fact, he like blatantly knows that Hyde is doing things. He doesn't know that Jekyll is Hyde or that Hyde is Jekyll, but he blatantly knows that it's Hyde that is murdering, um, that has murdered people and doesn't go to the police about it. Because again, he just wants to protect Jekyll's reputation. So in Bacter's film, the Utterson-like character seems to encourage Jekyll towards acting bad, or he's at least just as passive when he's suspicious of Jekyll as a killer. Um, so I have got, I have an example or an image of, of a, an actor that plays Utterson um, in a film. And then here on the right, on the bottom right-hand screen, is an image of Dr. Jekyll, who is the man with long hair and the scruffy beard because he's just been working so hard he doesn't have time to shave. Um, and to the left is the Utterson-like figure. So at the beginning of the film, um, the Utterson-like figure in Baxter's film, a character called Professor Robinson, um, Robertson, excuse me, uh, admits to spending the night with a dancer or a singer. So he's constantly making eyes at women or making sexual in innuendos. Um, he, like Utterson, is a kind of policing figure, albeit he's a terribly ineffective one. Um, the actual, there are actual detectives in this film, but they're really not very helpful. And for some reason, they rely on Robertson as their leader, even though he's not a part of the police force. Um, and this will probably remind us of the pub, some of the public opinion of the police force in 1888. So I don't have time to get too far into this thread of the detective figure and policing and, and what kind of policing these characters do. Uh, female bodies in this film, um, but know that there's a lot of stuff to talk about, uh, and I would love to hear any additional thoughts. So I'd like to focus on the gender inversion of the film and Dr. Jekyll and Sister Hyde, but before I do this, I feel like it's probably important to speak first about the gender mythology, um, excuse me, the traditional gender mythology that Jill the Ripper the Jill the Ripper theory and this film arguably attempt to subvert. So feminist critic Lynn Pickett defines separate spheres ideology um, as, quote, the development of the middle-class home and family in the 19th century involved a new kind of division of labor, the moral and reproductive labor of the wife and mother within the private domestic sphere and the competitive economic productive labor of the husband in the public sphere of industry, commerce, and politics. So essentially, um, under this kind of separate spheres ideology, which was the ideology used um, during the time and arguably still today, uh, appropriate femininity is domestic and appropriate masculinity is public. Um, so the domestic ideology of the period sought to prevent arguments or a total subordination of women to their husbands. A more democratic model of decision-making in the household 
would have endangered the male authority that was a fundamental com component of masculine self-respect, um, as the 19th century theorist Griffin argues. So on one hand, women were considered naturally submissive and nurturing, and within this view, the victims of, the Jack, of Jack the Ripper transgressed appropriate femininity through their labor, their sexual labor, and their poverty. Um, we now know that such ideology fundamentally depends on class, right? And that the boundaries between private and public, feminine and masculine was during the Victorian period and is in our current moment much messier than that. Simultaneously existing besides the submissive narrative of women was the idea that women naturally contain explosive materials. So Andrew Mangum argues, quote, women were considered to be inherently pathological, end quote. So many times these kind of explosions could erupt after menstruation, childbirth, or menopause. Um, so essentially there was two things happening, there were many things happening at once, but two of the things that were happening at once um, was that you have this nurturing submissive narrative, but also coupled with this idea that at any moment um, she could, at any moment she could snap, right? Um, so this kind of contradictory narrative could be a place for subordination or uh, or gender critique. So it's also that is primarily the gender mythology that Baxter's film engages with, and to be honest, most of most of Ripperture. So Sister Hyde, and this is a picture of her in the film. Um, and I apologize for like the quality of these screenshots. Uh, I got I took the screenshots on my computer and just the the quality of the film is not very good on my computer anyway, uh, but you can, you can tell for the most part what I mean for you to look at. Uh, so Sister Hyde is an example of the contradictory impulses of Victorian and neo-Victorian gender ide ideology. So H Sister Hyde in this film is deeply sexual. She wears scarlet red, um, you can see here, when she is literally just not in her underwear or just straight up naked. Um, Hyde serves Jekyll well until the transformation between the two begin to happen without Jekyll's consent. So Jekyll tells the audience, I was caught in a terrible trap. To continue my work, I needed Sister Hyde. Yet all the time I became more and more aware of her growing dominance within me. I no longer had the strength to fight, contain, or control." End quote. So he isn't really afraid of what Hyde will do until he believes that she will harm Susan, his love interest, who I'm going to talk to brief, talk, talk about briefly. Um, so she's planning on essentially killing Susan to protect herself um, from Jekyll stopping the transformation because she kind of sees Susan as um, a distraction. So Jekyll and Hyde, invert the traditional gender narrative. Hyde is the dominant one and the stronger one. Um, she tells Howard another character, quote, but of course I have the stronger personality ever since I, ever since the moment I was born, my poor brother is far too weak, end quote. So in Dr. Jekyll and Sister Hyde, appropriate femininity kind of the, who's set up as a juxtaposition, juxtaposition between, excuse me, juxtaposition to Sister Hyde but really how much of a juxtaposition she is, is a whole nother conversation. But, and Dr. Jekyll and Sister Hyde, appropriate femininity is represented in Susan Spencer, who is Jekyll's neighbor and his love interest. So she's always wearing really pastel color, colors. Most of the time it's either pink or sometimes she wears white um, to comparing to Hyde literally always wearing red. 
So when she flirts with Jekyll, because she kind of does, she does it in an appropriately demure but playful way. Um, she notices when Jekyll isn't eating regularly somehow because it's not like they live in the same room. So she knows that he hasn't been eating. I'm not sure. I guess her womanly instincts pick up on that. Um, and so she brings some trays of food to make sure that he's maintaining his strength. Of course, she doesn't know that Jekyll is indeed harvesting the reproductive organs of young women. Um, he does, though, subtly ask her opinion on his actions. So essentially, the scene is he asks her if um, she would sacrifice a lifeboat to save a steamliner, um, because that's how he views murdering sex workers. He's sacrificing uh, their lifeboat to save all of these people that he's going to save by sol solving all of these diseases or curing these diseases that he's going to be able to do while he's living longer by killing sex workers and their reproductive organs. Um, she says, she, so basically she responds to him by saying, again, she's not given the entire context, so we don't know like what she would think about Jekyll's actions truly. Uh, but she says, if the end result is worthwhile and important enough, then you have no alternative. That is no alternative to sacrifice a lifeboat to save the steamliner. And essentially, he, of course, is like, okay, this is this is Susan's permission. And he kind of seems sees Susan as like the surrogate representative, all things good, all things moral. Um, so she's like, yeah, it's, you have to do it to save the um, lifeboat, just takes that as permission. She also really awkwardly um, interrupts Hyde. So whenever Jekyll turns into Hyde, she has a relationship with students, Susan's brother, Howard, um, and it's a sexual relationship. And Susan regularly walks in on Hyde and Howard, her brother, like kissing um, because she's trying to get close to who she thinks is Jekyll's sister. Because if she, if Hyde likes her, then she'll say nice things about Susan to Jekyll. Um, honestly, these scenes are incredibly cringeworthy. Again, this was a 1971 Hammer film, so a lot of it is cringeworthy, but it's it's good. Uh, but the scenes serve to juxtapose Hyatt's unbridled sexuality to Susan's apparent appropriate sexuality or just lack of sexuality. So at one point, and again, I know that the quality of this image isn't very good, but this is the best one I could get because this scene is like, I, on purpose and intentionally just not lit very well because she's walking through streets at night. But at one point, Hyde decides that Susan will be her next victim because Jekyll is getting too attached to her. She says something like, there will be a different kind of victim tonight, um, implying that Susan is, is, better, uh, is better than the other victims. Um, so basically cut to a scene that resembles the earlier murders of sex workers in the film. Um, it's a dark alleyway, but unlike the sex workers, Susan doesn't seem to know where she's going because of course she wouldn't. She's too respectful to navigate the London streets alone at night. And it's basically just her like running around in alleyways getting confused and lost. I was my dog again. Hopefully you didn't hear that. Um, she doesn't realize that Hyde is following her with the intention of murdering her. So she's, Hyde is stopped though before she can follow through with the stabbing. Um, because Jekyll is able to, Hyde turns into Jekyll and Jekyll is able to overcome Hyde's strength at that moment to save Susan because Jekyll deems Susan worth saving um, or too valuable to sacrifice for the greater good. Uh, so her lifeboat is not worth sacrificing 
excuse me. Yeah, her lifeboat is not worth sacrificing for the steamliner, but none of the other previous sex, none of the other examples, excuse me, none of the other murder victims, the sex workers, he didn't do anything for them. Um, so on the face of it, this film is a pretty straightforward example of traditional gender mythology. There's a proper um, woman, Susan, there's improper woman, Hyde. The improper woman is punished ultimately because Jekyll and Hyde die at the end. Um, it's very sad, but I, I want to point to some of the gender frisions here because I, I do think that they're important to point to, and I think that this text is an example of ripature uh, is indicative of some of the trends of other texts in ripature. So in addition to the gender inversion narrative, the theme of queerness that some scholars argue is inherent in Stevenson's novella is very evident in Baxter's film. Um, so in Stevenson's novella, and I'm, I'm gonna, is quote, knit to him Jekyll closer than a wife, end quote. Hyde is described as being caged in Jekyll's flesh. So let's remember the story of Eve being taken from Adam's flesh. So as far as like Hyde's view of Jekyll, and this is in Stevenson's novel, Hyde is disgusted with Jekyll, but doesn't completely destroy him because quote, his love of life is wonderful. Um, and Jekyll describes being sickened and freezing at the mere thought of him uh, when he recalls the abjection when he recalls the objection and passion of this attachment, and when he knows how much fear that Hyde has of having his life taken away by suicide, he Jekyll pities him. So it's an it's an interesting relationship. Jekyll is afraid of Hyde, but pities him. Hyde just really straight up hates him. Um, so I want to highlight the specific language used in this last quote, like abjection and passion which can easily describe an unhealthy romantic relationship as well as the relationship of enemies, which I think arguably applies, both of those apply to Jekyll and Hyde. Um, it's also interesting that Hyde's level of life is entirely dependent on Jekyll as the source of that life. So his love of self depends on his love of the other, which again, can easily describe romantic partners or enemies. Um, this is really similar to the relationship between Baxter's Jekyll and Hyde. Wish my mouse would work better. Okay, so there are lots of discussions in 1888 of the Whitechapel murders' motives and in contemporary ripature about possible sexual motivations. Um, the entire premise of the Michaelmas Girls, which is a novel published in 1975 by John Brooks Berry, um, is that the murderer is a duo of Mary Jane Kelly, yes, you heard that right, and some unknown man because it, they both have repressed same-sex sexual desires. Um, I've seen it posited that Ralph Bates, the actor who played Dr. Jekyll and Dr. Jekyll and Sister Hyde, um, wanted to, or wanted the studio to allow him to play Sister Hyde himself the whole time in drag, um, but they wouldn't let him do this because I guess that would be too far. Uh, they thought that that would be too far. So besides the queerness of gender inversion, there are other examples of queerness. So most notably, Dr. Jekyll frequently actually physically changes part way into Hyde or seems to adopt the mind of Hyde when he's interacting with some of the other characters. So I don't wanna get off too far off 
on an academic tangent because we are limited on time, but just to clarify, I'm using queer as Pamela Demery uses the word, which I see as being inherently um, tied to adaptation as a process. So like I said, adaptation as a form is particularly adept at offering us queer potential. So this is how Pamela Demery defines it and how I'm using it. To adapt is to modify, to evolve, to transform, to repeat, imitate, parody, make new. To queer something is to make it strange or odd, but also to turn or transform it. To queer then maybe to adapt, to adapt is to queer. To identify something as an adaptation is to recognize it in relation to something else, something prior, something that for at least some people is more original and more true. Similarly, to identify something as queer is to place it in relation to some uh, to something that seems to have already been established as normal or straight. Um, so there's lots of things to unpack in this quote that we don't have time um, to do all of it. But uh, essentially for Demery um, and how I understand it, uh, adaptation and queerness are both attempts to bend something, right, that we've, that we've set up as being the original. Um, whether that's a text that the adaptation is based off of, like Jack the Ripper, or um, The Crimes of Jack the Ripper, or Dr. Jekyll um, and Mr. Hyde. So in one of the more graphic scenes in the film, um, Hyde seduces Jekyll's friend, Professor Robertson, who, again, just as a reminder, he's a quasi-Utterson um, and Stevenson's novella. Uh, so before the murder, Robertson is told by the police, hey, there's been another, there's been another crime. And for some reason, like before going to investigate that crime or perform like a, an autopsy, it's really unclear about what Robertson's role is in all of this, but he's just, the police depend on him, I guess, for his scientific knowledge. Um, so before going to that murder, uh, Robertson goes to Jekyll's apartment to confront him about his suspicions that Jekyll is Jack the Ripper. So instead of Jekyll answering the door, Hyde answers the door. Um, and the pair decide to go to Robertson's home to speak more privately, which we all know what that's code for. So Robertson turns around philosophically to drink his wine and talk to Hyde about his suspicions, which you can see in the left image. Um, only to turn back to Hyde to realize that Hyde has stripped down to her underwear um, as a distraction. And so essentially all is forgotten about the murders because of his libido, they kiss, she stabs him in the back and kills him. So on the face of it, there really isn't anything that remarkable about remarkable excuse me about this scene so Hyde has been using her sexuality throughout this film um including you know Robertson but also Howard Susan's brother um and in many examples of ripperture sexuality and violence are intimately acquainted uh, acquainted but what I do want to point out is the fact that Hyde turns into Jekyll um in the middle of the murder and then switches back into Hyde again so essentially um and not to not to be too graphic and I probably shouldn't be miming this with my hands, but um, uh, she stabs, the knife goes down, it, the camera turns and it's high looking at Robertson. The camera turns to her stabbing again, lifting her hand up, the camera turns and it's, uh, it's Jekyll. 
Jekyll's face, as you can see in this image, but Jekyll in drag, dressed up, basically. Um, so when Jekyll appears at this moment, he's wearing Hyde's underwear, her hairstyle. Essentially, it's Ralph Bates in drag. Um, though he doesn't speak, Robertson seems to have a glimmer of recognition um, that it, it is actually his friend murdering him instead of his friend's sister. Um, and to be honest, Jekyll looks like he's enjoying himself the whole time. So the scene allows us to think that Jekyll isn't as innocent as he thinks he is, or that the separation between Jekyll and Hyde is actually very solid. It's only when he comes to in his own gender appropriate clothing that he feels guilt. As long as he keeps the separation, he's fine. Um, I do want to say that in no way am I equating queerness or gender crossing or gender bending with violence, because that would be completely ridiculous. But what I am saying is that there's space for gender play in this movie and the repertoire genre at large. Um, so there are so many examples of gender play in Jill the Ripper um, fiction, as well as just in this particular movie that I just don't have time to talk about. Um, but considering Jack the Ripper's place in popular culture, I truly believe that fictional adaptations are an important part and the mythology of the Whitechapel murders. Um, so I am unable to stay for Q&A because as you're watching this, I'm currently um, on my honeymoon, uh, but I'd love to hear your thoughts and I'd love to keep this conversation going because as I said, there's just so many more examples of this and so much more to talk about. Um, I have my email on here. You can reach me at gmbain at york.edu or you can follow me on Twitter, Gracie underscore Bain. Um, you can also uh, keep up with some of this discussion by listening to my podcast dissertation. Um, to be honest, I have not published any of it yet. I have recorded it, but it has not been posted. But I'll post updates on my Twitter um, whenever I do that. Uh, thank you so much for asking me to be here. It's been such a pleasure. And I'm looking forward to um, watching everyone's videos. Thank you. Let's see if I can.